I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Never underestimate the task of a journalist. In the maelstrom of political commentary, which seems to pull every news outlet today into its powerful grip, it's probably pretty difficult to swim against the news feed and remain true to, well, truth, especially in today's endless stream of information. Many English speakers in Israel and around the world turn to the Times of Israel for honest reporting on the Middle East. Reading through their articles, you get a sense that the Times of Israel isn't looking to please any specific readership. Despite their relative youth, the Times also has an impressive record of investigative journalism, including the piece known as The Wolves of Tel Aviv, written by Simona Weinglass, who was a guest on the podcast. The expose and Weinglass's journalism are widely accredited for playing the central role in taking down the fraudulent binary options industry in Israel. David Horowitz, the founding editor of the Times of Israel, began his career in 1983 at the Jerusalem Post, where he eventually became editor-in-chief. After leaving the Post in 2011, Horowitz launched the Times of Israel in 2012 and has since grown the website to a reach of 4 million readers a month. Horowitz has also authored several books, including Still Life with Bombers, Israel in the Age of Terrorism, and A Little Too Close to God, The Thrills and Panic of a Life in Israel. We're thrilled to have David Horowitz on the podcast today to speak about Israel, journalism, and free speech. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. So I think a good place maybe to get started is uh, this recent story of a rabbi, I think it was Dov Chayun, who uh, was just arrested for uh, performing a non-authorized, non-conventional wedding in Israel. Um, And, you know, even if it's only indirectly related, uh, I wonder if you see this as kind of a threat to uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. You wrote a big article about that. Um, yeah. a few days it was ago. quite short by my standards, that article. Um, one of my shorter pieces. Um, well, he was arrested for... He, he, I'm not sure he was arrested. He was detained. Uh, there may be a legal difference. He says he was detained. He was, he, he was woken up at 5.30 in the morning at his house in Haifa. He's a, a pretty well-known conservative rabbi, a pretty respected person. Um, and he had been summoned at the, the... The way it works here, I mean, the rabbinate is, you know, con- controls life cycle events in Israel. You can't get you know, born or or die in this country or married or divorced without the um, approval of the state rabbinate. And um, the rabbinate deemed that, or somebody in the rabbinate in Haifa deemed that he'd broken the law by marrying somebody, uh, a couple outside the um, aegis of the rabbinate. But the, the initial claim was that he'd married people who didn't have the right to be married because there was some question about their status. It, it it seems credibly that that was actually not correct. And, and one he, of them was a uh, a bastard child, right? Yeah. And and it seems that that was not correct, and the rabbinate was wrong. Um, but the rabbinate you know, had its uh, argument and and asked the police to <laughs> to call him in, and he he said he spoke to the police three times and said I can't come in on um, Thursday because I have to, I've got this gig at the president's residence with teaching you know Torah uh, with with <laughs> President Rivlin, but I'll come in on Monday. Uh, that, for me, is one of the more uh, ridiculous aspects of a totally outrageous story. And in any case, the police, despite him having said, yes, I will, I'm happy to come in and discuss this with you, just not today because I've got to be with the president, uh, they, they came to his house that, you know, that morning and they 
they took him off to the police station and they um, they had him sit there and uh, commit to coming in the following Monday, which he was going to do anyway. And the attorney, the attorney general intervened and said, you know, let this guy go and do not call him in for questioning. Um, it's a case of rabbinical overreach, but it's um, but it's first of all, it caused a, a you know a huge storm, especially when you're outside Israel and you don't appreciate the the intermingling of state and religion in this country. I mean, the notion that the rabbinate can uh, it's a court. Acti- Activate the cops, right? They are, yes, they're, they're a court, court absolutely. Like, in these, like right. the civil court. Yeah, in these aspects, absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, that for, for people who believe in the separation of, of religion and state. I mean, Israel is complicated, and we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, but uh, it, it was outrageous, and outrageous to, to American Jews, for example, across the spectrum. I mean, not only... Um, do you have millions of American Jews who are affiliated with Reform and Conservative Judaism, who, which have no um, official state-level comparable status in Israel to the Orthodox rabbinate, uh, but you had the, the real mainstream American Jewish leaderships protesting against this. There's an organization whose name is so long that I don't know how their staff get it on their business cards, but it's called the Conference of Major Jewish Organizations in the United States or something like that. And they put out a statement. Or something like that, or part of the uh, organization <laughs> name. That's on there too. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when those guys who, who sort of the umbrella group of American Jewry are, are upset, then, you know, you know you've, really, you've really struck a chord. And Israel is striking uh, more and more chords with... Uh, diaspora jury doing things that uh, that seem to alienate um, the non-orthodox streams of Judaism. So, how, how do you see this playing? I mean, where does the state of you know uh, separation of church and state lie in Israel, and how? Because one side of the aisle will definitely say that there is no plausible way in which the Jewish state can actually live, you know, with uh, separation of church and state, with the rabbinate and the legislative branch actually living uh, apart. How do you see that playing in a, out? And, you know, is, is it actually viable? Look, the first thing is, I think you have to respect that there's something unique about the the, the complicated reality of, of the Jewish religion, the Jewish state, and so on. You know, we're, we always want to remind people that it's not accidental that, the, that Israel was revived in 1948. This is the only place where the Jews have ever been sovereign and never willingly left and always prayed to return to. But uniquely in, in human history, I think, uh, when the Jews were forced to leave this part of the world, we hung together um, around our religion. So it was, the reli- it was the faith that sustained the nation in exile. And then when you've been able to return, you have to somehow balance um, the, the principles of the democracy that you insist on being with, with a certain respect for the religion that, that kept you going. Uh, down through those millennia. And what's striking is that, broadly speaking, I mean, everything is relative, we kind of managed to do that. And we've managed to do that with with a mix of legislation and precedent and just, just, and and fudge. Uh, You know, you live in Israel, you know that in Haifa, the buses run on Shabbat, and in Jerusalem, they don't. And in Tel Aviv, there aren't buses, but there are kind of, you know... Mini buses. (laughs) Right, mini buses. I mean, that's, that's, you know, a little example of compromise. You know that you're not supposed to work on on the Shabbat and places of business are not supposed to be open, but places of entertainment are. We've somehow managed to find a balance there. I mean, neighborhoods in Jerusalem where some of them are closed on Shabbat because Orthodox people live there, ultra-Orthodox people live there, don't want cars going through. And just down the road, there are areas that are open. We've we've found a middle ground. And I I think that's really the challenge. And and what what I think is um, that, that, that... of late, it would seem to me that some of the the, the balance and the sensitivity is being lost, um, and this is a real you know gross case of that. 
Um, it's not as simple as that. I mean, that's quite a, I've given you quite a pat answer, but it doesn't really satisfy some of the problems that that an uh, um, an interaction between religion and and you know the the, the, the legal principles of a, of a state uh, involved. It, it's really complicated, mm-hmm. um, and you, you know you you can't really easily continue. I don't think without giving non-orthodox streams of Judaism some kind of status here, without breaking the increasingly uh, um, strict and ultra-orthodox uh, monopoly of the rabbinate. Um, and, the, and the way that I would begin to tackle that, because I don't have easy answers, uh, I think you have to have greater consultation. And, and one of the, you know, the, they spent four years negotiating this Kotel compromise, for example. The leaders of, of Jewish streams uh, in the United States, in the diaspora, met with officials, representatives of the Israeli government to try to come up with some, some kind of solution that keeps everybody happy at the Kotel. And they kind of did it. And then the government scrapped it one day. And I think that's the reverse of what has to happen. You have to have greater dialogue. We, we in Israel resent it when anybody abroad, including the Jews, tries to prescribe what we should do for our security and for our uh, um, sort of existential issues. But on matters of Judaism, where, where Jews around the world have, have, a, have a similar stake, uh, there has to be greater consultation. And there can't, you can't have a situation where... The government, because of narrow political considerations, does outrageous things. And you can't, and really that's what you see playing out. And in a way, that's what you're seeing playing out, even with this rabbi, because it's because of ultra orthodox power in government that you have the, the sort of flexing of those muscles, I think. So, why would, why would the ultra orthodox give up the immense powers that were given to them? Why yeah. would they do that? Well, they won't. And, the, and unless somebody says, well, actually, that's not going to fly. Uh, they'll keep doing it. But any government here needs them in their coalition. So at some point, uh, yeah, first of all, that's right, and that's why it's happening. You know, and, and by the way, some legislation, I think the legislation that would jail you for two years for marrying somebody outside the rabbinate was actually passed in, in a relatively brief period in recent history when there weren't ultra-Orthodox Knesset members in the government. So even when they're not in the government, uh, you know, some of the things that they stand for um, get approved because... Almost every mainstream political party is trying to sort of keep them on their side. But, you, you know, at some point you have to draw a line uh, and it's not being drawn in the right place at the moment. That, I mean, that begs the question, like if they're sitting on the opposition and they manage to get, you know, exactly what kind of power do they possess? Do you, I mean... Political. It, Well, yeah, but I, there's a lot of talk often in Israel about uh, the rabbinate not being, you know, I guess the uh, the cleanest of organizations. Is there is there anything to be said of that, or is that just rumor? Are there any, you know, I don't know. Uh, It's a business. They're no, making but there's, lots of money. There's, uh, and, right? you know, there's stories from personal life and also that you read in the news, and I don't want to get into them, but... Uh, But that the rabbinate it can be swayed, you know, and that they have that they use, you know, ulterior uh, methods that are, you know, unconventional. Um, can you speak to that or? Look, you've had, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we have a former chief rabbi who, who went to jail for taking bribes. There, yeah. you know, unfortunately, uh, um, not everybody who um, claims particular um, holy behavior um, always fulfills those criteria just like you know there are saints and sinners everywhere it's often um, quite the opposite yeah uh unfortunately um look the, there are some they have tremendous political power that's for sure uh there are cases of corruption that's for sure you know we're, we're looking into some of them uh other people have looked into them in the last few weeks there's been talk about cor- uh, corruption in the whole kashrut uh network that's uh involved <laughs> the, the health minister was 
the subject of a TV report, I think it was last week, about all his relatives who happen to be kosher supervisors in the country's hospitals. He's ultra-Orthodox. Uh, yeah, the ultra-Orthodox health. He's actually, is he back again as the deputy minister? Because yeah. for a while he was the minister. No, anyway, uh, but you know, look, they're, they're creating problems, I would say, not only for, the, for, you know, for, for people who are affected outside that world, but even within their society. You have, you know, the political leadership is... is controls many of the purse strings in this country and you have school systems in this country for in the ultra orthodox community that do not teach a core a core curriculum that don't give their graduates uh, the skills you need to 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 to, to enter the workforce um, because many young ultra orthodox males don't serve in the army it's hard for them to enter the workforce i mean a dispensation in the early years of the state, that the best and the brightest should study Torah because that was a Jewish tradition, became a norm, which is a totally non-tradition uh, in, in the Orthodox world. In most Orthodox communities, ultra-Orthodox communities, people work. Uh, only in Israel is, this, is there this uh, um, skewed yeah. um, reality. And, and by the way, you know, just to be a little bit constructive here, one of the biggest issues that we have in Israel is the big argument between it's, it's misrepresented as an Orthodox-secular divide, Right. It's over the army, but it's really an ultra-Orthodox, everybody else divide, that the ultra-Orthodox don't serve in the army and everybody else does. And it's a hugely uh, um, acute uh, uh, disagreement in Israel, and you could solve it. You could solve it by having a great deal of respect for the ultra-Orthodox lifestyle, which I personally do have. I have a part of my family is ultra-Orthodox. Uh, you know, the world, the modern world is toxic, and if you want to protect your, yourselves from some of the more outrageous aspects of modern society. You know, who are we to tell you that that's not the right thing to do? You don't want to serve in a mixed gender army. I'm not sure the army needs all the ultra-Orthodox recruits, but then create national service programs for everybody. Everybody, you know, if, if, if most Israelis are required to give something to the state for its defense, to give something back to the country, and this community doesn't want to do that for, for reasons that may be legitimate, then create programs that they can do, mm -hmm. do some kind of national service, whether it's teaching or... Uh, um, uh, helping the elderly or sweeping the streets. But why and, should I send my my children to, to die? I want them to, to teach too. Yeah, I understand. But I, and I, I think there's a lot of, of, uh, of merit for that concern. But I think a major step, at least, I think you're, uh, as a parent or as yourself, being required to give up two to three years for the defense of this country and putting your life on, on the line. The anger that you feel that that is not a universal requirement would I think be, be mitigated a little bit if at least you knew one, two things. First of all, that maybe the army doesn't need everybody and therefore there's room for other ways to serve the country. And second, that everybody was doing some kind of service. I agree with you, it's not the same. I agree with you, it's not the same. But still, I think the, the anger is exacerbated because here are some, some parts of the society that are, taking, that, are, that are placing their lives on the line and here are other parts of society that are doing nothing at all. So I can't... I can't give you absolute equality in terms of, of, of the risk you take in the defense of the state, but at least do something. And that I don't understand. And, and not solving that is counterproductive for their own community. I don't even understand. I, I genuinely don't understand why that isn't at least uh, um, a, a sensible option. And, but, you know, reading, David, through your article about that incident, I couldn't help but think I, I might be a little blunt, but where does, because it seemed a little bit hopeful, or, you know, you were like, we need to do this and that, and this should happen, like you say now. And, like, I'm, I'm like, this is never going to happen. Like, nothing is going to change for, for the best, maybe for the, 
for the worst. Bleak. Um, <laughs> so because because the only way, if, if the American Jews, they want to help, like the conservatives, and instead of talk to the ultra-Orthodox, they should come here and, and be, become citizens and vote. That's the only way something might ever change, and they don't do that. So where do you get your hopes from? Okay, so, you know, I'm... I'm fairly optimistic generally speaking but i'm not you know particularly optimistic this in the is the segment short we term. call noor's pessimism <laughs> unfortunately noor i'm not you know a million miles away from you you know heaven forbid anyone should say i'm a i'm a you know a completely naive optimist in the short term you know broadly speaking like i say i, I hope that, that good will triumph but i'm not expecting wonderful things to change in in the very near future um and in a way you know you're right that the the look, everything we're talking about is a function of demographics if there were five million non-orthodox um religious jews uh which would mean americans uh, moving to israel then all of those issues would change because the parliamentary balance would change and the balance of power would change and so on and the only reason why there would be millions of american jews coming to israel would be a terrible reason which would mean that it would be because they can't live proud public jewish lives in the united states You know, the, the only almost there. So. Well, I don't think so. No. I really don't. And that, you know, the, you, you can sort of throw the pessimism out there, but I'll, but I'll bat some of it back. There's only two big Jewish communities in the world. That's Israel and the United States. Um, and, the, and the five, six million, depending on how you count it, Jews in the United States, on the whole, um, are able to lead proud public Jewish lives in a way that Jewish communities in much of the rest of the world cannot, by the way. Right. So they are, it's not unique, but it's, it's very, very unusual. And yeah, so there's, there are, there are, there's growing extremism and there are growing concerns about anti-Semitism. But I would, I would not compare it to a situation, for example, in parts of Paris where you just can't walk around safely with a kippah on your head or a Magin David or at, at your neck or you know, other parts of Europe and, and, and places beyond. Uh, so in a way, I kind of don't want million. I, you know, I'm not the Aliyah Shaliyah. I, I did make Aliyah. I think this is a ph phenomenal country to live in. Um, I'd be delighted if lots of American Jews come and live here. But... For, for masses of them to come here and change all those issues we're talking about, something would have had to have gone terribly wrong in the United States, which, you know, which I certainly hope does not happen. So where do you get your hopes from that? <laughs> so, for example, something like national service is, you know, I think you've got a failure of leadership here. Um, and I don't think that's un unreversible, irreversible. I think, you know, that's a win-win. It really is. It's good for the Altruthos community. It's good for the rest of Israel. And therefore, I want to believe, and you can call me optimistic, that at some point somebody will come forward and say, but this is ridiculous. This is, this is counterproductive for everybody. This is not a, a, you know, a lose-lose. It's a win-win to change this. So I think where, where everybody's interests are served, you, you want to believe that ultimately logic will, will, will take over. Um, so that's why I have some optimism for that in, in, in the near future, because it's an issue. We can't solve lots of our issues in Israel. Uh, we can't solve lots of our external issues. The Iranian regime hates us. I don't think anything that Israel could do would change the attitude of that regime. But some of the domestic issues, and this among them, we can solve ourselves. And it's in everyone's, everyone's interest to do it. Just for the record, some parties, like the one you mentioned of the Minister of Health, um, the decision-making is being done by one person, often an old rabbi who has no idea, like he is far from rational. So often rational claims or arguments are not really his, his thing. Well, let's, you know, let's, you're imposing a definition of rationality that probably I share, um, but there are other people who have other definitions of reality and just uh, of rationality, just to give you, uh, you know, uh, A personal sort of anecdotal experience like I say I have relatives who are ultra-orthodox which uh, stream 
You know what? I haven't got a clue. Okay. But my, I have an uncle who's the head of the yeshiva in Jerusalem. Okay. Okay. He brings people to Judaism, and it's what he's done for decades, and his heart and soul are in it. Um, and my first cousins, if you said to them, you know, it's the Israeli army that's kept this country going for 70 years, and if we didn't have a strong army and, and it's some very smart people planning and, and preparing and so on, we wouldn't be here. They, they truly don't believe that. They don't think that that is true. They think that the only reason this country has survived is because... Of God. Because God is on our side, and enough people have shown respect for God uh, in, in their lifestyle choices, choices that they make. They really believe that. And, it, and, and then, then you, you know, if you go into that deeper, you know, the notion that in 1948 this country would have, would have survived the War of Independence, or that in 1967, inside a week, we destroyed the Arab armies. What, you think that was because of you know, some mighty general and a very good tank? No, this is because God supports the revival of Jewish sovereignty. Um, I don't. I don't happen to share that uh, that argument. I think God helps those who help themselves, but but that's their rationality. It's you know. So you know, it's not the way we see the world. But there, that, that is a worldview um, that they that they cling to and that they completely believe in. But at some point, you have to. I, I mean, I, I admire, I guess, your ability to uh, accept other, you know, standpoints and rationalities. But at some point, you have to draw a line and say, okay, this is just complete. You know, I, I, Jews were preserving the religion, as you said, for millennia, and nothing came about until we kind of took a stand. So, at some point, you have to push back and say, okay, sure. this doesn't make any Listen, sense. Listen, if I ran the show, there'd be national service for everybody. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Okay, that's fine. You believe that? No, because I, I don't think this country would survive if yeah. everybody was studying Torah all day, um, and therefore, if you know, like I say, if if it was down to me, and but my point about that is. It's a solution that, that does, solve, does serve everybody. So let's do it. Yeah. So I guess to bring us back a bit from Noor's hope killing campaign, because <laughs> um, we got into a discussion, I guess. Oh, more I'm just of, getting started. <laughs> we got into a discussion more of uh, religion and separation of church and state and American Jewry. Uh, I want to talk a bit about uh, free speech in Israel. And I guess that was kind of where the question was going at the beginning. But do you. What do you find the challenges are of being a journalist in Israel? I'm not sure you can compare it to, to anywhere else, but what do you find the challenges of being a journalist in Israel? And do you see any threat um, in this kind of, I guess, environment of, uh, it seems like, I don't know, heavy-handed government or... or, or uh, Getting more right-wing. Not, yeah, not, not totalitarianism, obviously, but there is kind of this, this uh, vibe of... Uh, of cutting down on certain liberties, do you do you feel like there's there's any kind of threat, and what challenges do you face? I you know when when the prime minister um, um, criticizes and tries to discredit media, I find that troubling. Um, we live in an era where um, you know we, we, let, let's understand a little bit about how democracy is supposed to work, right? We we can't we don't all have time to run the country because we have we have our own lives to run. So every now and again we have elections and we choose people to to make decisions on our behalf, whose philosophies and, and uh, approaches we, we, we find you know, the most likable. That's how you choose your, your leaderships and your governments. Uh, but then you, you have, in a, in a perfect world, you have law enforcement and you have an indep- independent uh, uh, journalistic hierarchy, um, which are meant to, make sh- to, to keep these people in check, make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And uh, unfortunately, in this day and age, two things have happened. Uh, you can communicate, leadership can communicate without being... Uh, questioned effectively and policed effectively by um, by media. In other words, presidents and prime ministers don't need to um, 
give interviews to people who might ask them awkward questions, they can just speak on Facebook or they can tweet and never be held accountable or never be pressed on, on core issues. And that you see happening in, in Israel, of course, and in lots of other countries, of course, notably including the United States, where you have a president who you know, sort of tweets at two in the morning. Uh, and when he holds press conferences, will take questions from people who he knows are going to ask him uh, sympathetically as opposed to provocatively. And you also have in, in journalism an economic crisis uh, ever since the rise of the Internet because the revenue that you get um, from a page read is, is nothing compared to the revenue you used to get from people buying your newspaper. And therefore, independent journalism is having a hard time surviving and people take over journalistic entities because they have uh, personal motives of one kind or another. So those environments uh, you know, are difficult. Uh, to be very, very personal at the Times of Israel, I, when I set this up, I have a partner uh, who's a, a Boston uh, um, um, a businessman, fund manager. His name is Seth Klarman. And, um, what were his motives? Yeah, that's, uh, his, he, I, I pitched the idea for, for a nonpartisan um, website reporting Israel and the region and the Jewish world. Um, and he believed in what I was um, planning to do. And the way the company was set up, he has no impact input into our editorial process whatsoever. Uh, but there is—is is there not the fear or the uh, some kind of ongoing uh, worry that you know funds will be pulled, or is that also somehow? Uh... Well, look, when I set this up, we we had a, a, a program, a plan for a certain number of years. Yeah. Uh, was I think four years was the it was the sort of initial business plan that I pitched. That was six and a half years ago. Um, we, we've done very, very well. Um, and, you know, uh, the future is, is, is never guaranteed in, you know, for, for anyone, but, you know, our future looks, looks pretty good. Um, and in terms of the integrity of that process that, you know, our editorial operation is our editorial operation and, and it's not in thrall to anybody, mm -hmm. uh, that's emphatically the way things have played out. So my point is that we've had this sort of mini miracle at the Times of Israel that we run uh, a, a process as, that is as, as honest or, or flawed as, as, as we journalists make it. I mean, we, are, we, we have been able to, to work independently. Um, if you're asking me about media, you know, media in Israel, not all media in Israel um, fits into that category. I'm not talking about um, there are certainly media in Israel that is that is, that has integrity, but that does have a partisan orientation, which I think is legitimate. Um, I just wanted ours to try to be uh, fair minded. Obviously, we all have our biases. There's no such thing as absolute objectivity and so on. Mm. Um, you know, so so the media landscape in Israel is, is a little bit troubling, both because politicians can avoid being effectively um, watchdogged by the media and because they're all, you know, m many of them are, are fighting some kind of economic pressure or have ownership that has particular interests. The way it's played out in Israel, for example, if you think about it, and, you know, for, for listeners who are not completely familiar with the Israeli media landscape, you know, the, especially in America, right? So America on, t on TV, you have, a, you have very polarized coverage. So if you watch CNN and Fox, if two of you, one of you watches CNN and the other watches Fox all day at the end of the day and you compare notes, you'll find you are living in, in two different countries. That kind of um, uh, partisan, very clear partisan narrative you get in, in the print media in Israel, where the most read newspaper is Sheldon Adelson's Pro Netanyahu Israel Hayom, and the biggest selling newspaper is Yediot Achronot, which cannot bear Netanyahu. So, so that kind of plays out. That's where the parallel is. But, but you do have those two sides. Israeli mm -hmm. TV 
you know, I don't think Netanyahu would say that Israeli TV is on his side, but it's not, um, you know, the mainstream news, I think is, you know, probably would be perceived as somewhere a little to the left of center, but not radically so. Uh, you know, you have a, a pretty wide mix of media in Israel. I'm not worried about sort of the, the mix. Uh, in terms of, of losing freedom of speech, you should know that last week in the Knesset, they almost passed a law, I kid you not, that would basically have given the government the right to take down any user-generated content unilaterally. Uh, they thought they were tackling Facebook. That was why they were right. doing it. But it was the, called the Facebook right, law. The wording of that legislation, and you should read something we, our political reporter, Raoul Woodliffe, um, who read the law, and <laughs> as it was being debated, said, but wait a minute, this doesn't just apply to Facebook. The way you've worded it, it would mean, I mean, we have a blog platform, for example, the Times of Israel, it would mean the government could order the closure of, of the entire blog platform Again, unilaterally, without anyone being able to mount any kind of defense. Right. And he started asking Knesset members questions. You, you do realize what this law provides for. It's not just tackling, you know, incitement on, on Facebook. This is... Which, by uh, the way, is impossible, technically. Well, we, we can get into that. But they, this, was, this was much more far-reaching. Right. And, and I think credibly it emerged. They didn't realize what they were about to, to vote into law. And a few hours before this was going to become the law, Netanyahu pulled it. Yeah, he backed off. Because, he, because it, was, it was made plain. I mean, there's no reason why he wouldn't have gone through with that law, because he does want to tackle Facebook. They stopped the law because it had been misworded. But uh, what, what was the rationale or what was the aim of the law to begin with? To take down user-generated content on Facebook? Yeah, like on inciting so, posts? Fight terrorism. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I fake see. news and, and terrorism And they worded it as basically the government the can way, take down. It, yeah, it was... It was Poorly worded is an understatement, and it had much more. It would have been the most draconian um, government right to censor social media in the Western world. That's mm -hmm. what that law would have been, and they didn't mean to do it. So they'll come back with it. But, it, you know, that, that gives you a little insight into how fragile things can be. And also, you have to say how potentially inept uh, some of the legislative processes in this country I mean, I'll give you another example. Which Some of the legislators. Well, if they're doing the, the legislating, you know. Yeah. I mean, inept, again, is, <laughs> is kind in some cases. Because in some cases, I mean, the, when, they, when they push through the budget every year and there's this allocations bill where vast amounts of money are, are channeled off to who knows where at the last right. minute with no proper oversight. You know, that's really pernicious. Right. And that's a norm. But, you know, they passed a law a few months ago that said essentially meant that the, the prime minister could go to war single handedly. Right. Ostensibly, he would have to have the defense minister, um, but nothing more than that. And you know that in, Often it's the same person. in recent Israeli history, that can be the same person. They really didn't mean to do that. And the minute they passed it, even the Likud, which had led it, said, well, wait a minute, that's, that's not so good. Right. And last week they canceled it again. I mean, they're so... It's yeah. fudgy, as you said. There's a, you, you <laughs> have, it's everything well, is you fudgy. You have to watch. You have to watch, you right. know, with the best one in the world. Again, not coming at this from... I mean, that, that law on, on who gets to, to declare war was raised real concerns across Parliament. It wasn't that one side thought it was great. They didn't realize quite what they were doing kind of thing. Right. And, that, and this Facebook law that expanded all of a sudden... And that they, they reined back in. Again, it wasn't, it's not like one side was trying to put one over on the other side. It was just ineptitude. It sounds kind of like you're a, a kindergarten teacher watching over like 120 kids running around playing with scissors. <laughs> you're trying to control it. Well, that's, but you know, look, if, who's the you in your question? If that means the media in general, that's kind of what the media is supposed to do. Yeah. That's one of the things that it's supposed to do because, hey, like I said, you guys are meant to be run the show. We don't have time to do it. We've got our lives to lead. These guys have got to keep track of you. Mm -hmm. When media functions effectively, I mean, it's very important that we did that. But yeah. don't you feel the influence of, of media is descending and diminishing? 
Like I, I don't get today why would someone become a journalist in the in the good old days? You know, a journalist could make a difference, but today it seems the only way to make a difference is to run for office to to become member of parliament. That's apropos you said earlier something about if I were running the show, running the show. Yeah, no, I th- I think the um, uh, look the the readiness of. Of people to spend time and getting into nuance and and look deeply I think people's attention spans have have, sh- have shortened I think people you know have other um, distractions and I think that our politicians and I don't just mean in Israel have become more cynical about this um, I, I think that we will find that if these other hierarchies I mean there's the political leadership and there's law enforcement and there's the judiciary and there's the media if those other hierarchies become marginalized irrelevant and Um, weak, uh, corrupted, democracies will collapse. So um, whether, whether you know, one should go into journalism, there's lots of considerations that one may make. But if you want to preserve strong democracy, which I, you know, to quote Winston Churchill, to probably misquote Winston Churchill, you know, is the best, you know, is the worst form of government except for all the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we still believe that to be the case, which I kind of do, until somebody proves the contrary, you need... Those hierarchies to act you know effectively I think it's really important what we do I think it does make a difference um, and What's the thing you're proud of the most right well, look the thing you know you mentioned in in, in introduction there well when we started you know we we did not have uh, we, were, we were a smaller staff we've added reporters which is something that I'm very proud of because that's what I you know when you're breaking ground and when you're doing stuff that's that's original and that nobody else is doing uh, you know the more you do of that the better you And when you when you do it in areas that will improve people's lives and make and make the world a slightly better place you know that's good too so the the work that Simona um, has done in trying to there's a kind of a layer of corruption in Israel uh, it's it, an is, it is it, it's an understatement and it's massively underappreciated uh, and we're an English language outlet and and therefore it's you know it's even more of a struggle to bring matters to people's attention um, but it has tremendously negative implications and Um, and it's and law enforcement is weak in in some aspects of tackling uh, parts of this crime white collar crime sophisticated crime internet related crime um, why do you think that is is it because we're a fledgling state is it I mean what's what are the reasons for so much corruption because I, I think oh well corruption generally I, I look because people when if they're able to often there will be people who will abuse uh, um, people's trust or um, Uh, you utilize their skills uh, nefariously and if you don't have effective law enforcement that will flourish we're in a period now because of the internet where, where some of the offensive skills this doesn't just apply to sort of financial corruption also applies to uh, hacking and, and doing de- skewing of elections the offensive capabilities on the internet at the moment outstrip the defensive capabilities right why you know if, if you look at the investigation in the United States to the elections, Uh, and then you look at what happened in France, by the way, where Macron saw what was coming and kind of preempted what would have been an effort to misrepresent him and his history and hack into his systems and so on. He saw it was coming and he kind of deflected it. But we're in a period, broadly speaking, like I say, where the bad guys are more effective than the good guys on the, on, in some aspects of the Internet. And in, in terms of Israel and cor- financial corruption in Israel via the Internet, there's no question in my mind that the people who are abusing trust and who are... Uh, acting uh, um, criminally on the internet are simply better resourced in some cases smarter than law enforcement law enforcement in Israel cannot cope 
when we when we realized what was happening with with this thing which is basically theft called binary options it's basically tricking people into giving giving your bank account details and credit card and money huge operation uh, i mean billion we're talking about billions right and by the way it's nice that you said in the intro that we we stopped it we didn't stop it it's now illegal in israel but nobody's been prosecuted in israel for this the only people who are really taking action is the fbi and american law enforcement who mm-hmm. because americans are being ripped off have kind of con- constantly prodded it, the israeli police into action but it, but israel israel police has not tackled this crime even though it became illegal because of our reporting uh, in january this year uh, it's continuing, and it's only international law enforcement that is that is making the effort. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it took it required us to go to the financial authorities in this country. It required us, the Times of Israel, to explain. To, we we went to the. I remember explaining to the aide to the Knesset member who runs the state control committee what was going on, and I, it was the most infuriating conversation because she. She insisted in telling me, I don't see what the problem is. Why is there, why is there something wrong about this? And, and it was a really annoying conversation. And to her great credit, she did get it. She was just making sure that she got it. And then you know, Knesset members got on board and this, and this law was passed. So it's not that you can't change things. But like I say, at the moment, uh, in terms of, of crimes that can be carried out over the Internet, not only in Israel and not only financial, the, the bad people are, 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 are on top. And it will take time and will for, for law enforcement to catch mm-hmm. up with them. Just we're, to make it clear, yeah. um, the 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 binary options industry was outlawed in January, but your investigative journalism began back in, what, 2013? 16. Okay, so first of all, th- th- this has been going on for 10 years, okay? Yeah. And okay. we only started writing about it two years ago. Mm. Um, and it was it was then banned in Israel. And it became illegal for Israeli crooks, basically, to call up Israelis and con them. But they were not banned, they were not barred from doing it to everybody all over the world. And therefore it continued. And because we started, I mean, there, were, there had been reports in Hebrew media. It's not like nobody had covered it. But nobody had said, wait a minute, this is like a colossal, terrible thing. Right. And billions are being uh, stolen here. And people are being, you know, we have people pushed to suicide. When we, when we were testifying at the Knesset committee, we got in, into the committee room, we Skyped the family of a guy who'd killed himself, who'd taken his own life because he'd been scammed by Israeli binary options crooks. Um, so it was, it was, it continued. You Skyped his family? You, he, you the, son, the son, no, the son, uh, the son spoke to the Knesset members. Yeah, yeah. So my, my dad's dead because, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to, get, to give you a sense of the scandal, we know who stole his money mm-hmm. and they're still running around. Right. And that's one of the, the abiding outrageous things about that particular scandal, that, but, that the bad people have not been have not been made to pay. Now, it, they'll get, they will get to them because, the, because American law enforcement will get to them. Mm-hmm. There was a case filed last week that we reported on where one um, uh, binary options scammer who lives in the United States has been, has been um, uh, indicted in a criminal case for, for damages for $75 million. That's one, one person. Uh, this industry employs thousands, employed employs thousands of Israelis. Weren't you threatened? Yes. <laughs> Legally and otherwise. Yeah, sure. Can you tell us about? Well, first of all, we, we had, you know, lots of legal threats and we had some um, threats of um, harm, physical harm. You took security measures? Uh, yeah, I hope we've done what's necessary. It's not past tense. It's, you know, we haven't, yeah. we haven't stopped writing about it. It's, uh, it's challenging. It's challenging to work in an environment when you're exposing criminality and law enforcement isn't prosecuting it. 
That's mm-hmm. the difference. Like you go watch these these great American movies, like The Post, for example, um, or you know the, the way where you take on or um, what was the word? Spotlight, right? You're taking yeah. on you know crime. The minute it's exposed, law enforcement wheels into action, and your work is done as a journalist. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, in this case, you expose it, you write about it, and not much happens. So to sum it up, our Knesset <laughs> members are incompetent. Oh, I don't our think we police, should let sum it up. Our police police is no. incompetent. Um, and we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Can you try and uh, I'm not, give us I'm a I'm not little... signing off on that. No. <laughs> some of our Knesset members are wonderful people, others less so. Some law enforcement uh, are, you know, are very impressive, but they're under-resourced. Uh, it's a challenge. It's not black and white. It's a challenge. Thank okay. you so much, that was David. My upbeat, so. No, that's good. Yeah, that's you know more upbeat than no or. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, uh, as we mentioned, we collaborate with the Jewish Journal um, out in LA. It's a great source for uh, news. They have some good opinion pieces. Check them out, JewishJournal.com. And of course, guys, check out the Times of Israel. Um, yeah, how do people website is timesofisrael.com mm-hmm. You can follow them on Twitter. Follow them on Facebook. Um, and David, you too are on Facebook and social media? Um, yeah, I'm afraid how, so. Yeah. How can people find you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's David Horowitz. You'll find me everywhere. It's with a V. There are other people with similar names, but mine is H-O-R-O-V-I-T-Z. But yeah, timesofisrael.com, that's where you should go. We'll, we'll post some links, and we okay. accept donations, guys. So if you feel like helping us out, please be generous. It's a mitzvah. All your money. Just all of it. Yeah, give <laughs> us, or at least half. Half is yeah. also okay. We make the same joke every time. Yeah. But, you know, hopefully one day it'll hit. <laughs> yeah. Someone will Bill laugh. Gates will be like, ah, half is fine. Okay, David, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Good luck with your endeavors. Thank you. Bye, Bye guys. Bye.